Welcome back. Turn to John chapter 8, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you or nearby. And I can't remember what page that's on, so if somebody has one of those paper Bibles, just call out the page number for John. What's that, Marilyn? 521. 521 on the gray paper Bible there to get to John chapter 8. This morning we are looking at verses 48 through 59. Uh, This is the second sermon in the series based on the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. We'll be working through what does it mean for Jesus to say I Am, Uh, that phrase ego I me. Uh, What is he referring to? Why is it such a big deal? Uh, And then we're going to be looking at what he adds to that when he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Um, I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. That's what we looked at last week. And just by way of review, um, John, if you're going to understand the book of John, Uh, then it's key to understand in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20, uh, John just says right out front, um, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John basically says, I wrote, I I selected out of all the signs that Jesus did, um, seven of them. And out of these seven signs, I wrote them so that you would um, believe in your mind, intellectually, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. And that two-part verb there, believe, and by believing, uh, those two words, pistuo, believe, uh, to by believe is to surrender, uh, to surrender as we talked about last week. Uh, There are these two parts. You can understand that Jesus intellectually is Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and to be convinced of that in your mind is necessary, but um, more than that, you must surrender your heart. Uh, And we see that For example, in James, where he says that even the demons believe that Jesus is the Christ, but they step away from surrender. They don't surrender to Jesus and his authority. So John writes so that you'll believe in Jesus intellectually, and that by believing and surrendering that you would have life. And he's going to do that in the Gospel of John, the book of John, um, by seven signs. The seven signs are he turned water to wine in Cana. That's John chapter 2. He healed an official son by a long-distance miracle in John chapter 4. He heals an invalid who had been an invalid for 38 years in John chapter 5. In John chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people at once. In John uh, chapter 9, he heals a man who was born blind. In chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. And then in John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Those are the eight, uh, seven signs that John included in his gospel so that you would believe. Uh, there's an eighth sign or miracle in John. Um, do you remember when Peter, um, at the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, when the officers come to arrest Jesus, Jesus does an eighth miracle that's not included in these seven miracles 
He does. Uh, Peter hacks off that guy's ear. Remember that? Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And I don't know what that looked like. Jesus grabbed his ear off the ground and put it back to his head and it was healed miraculously. But that wasn't one of these public signs that John is talking about. So John builds his gospel on the seven signs and then also on these seven I am statements. The bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. The resurrection and the life. That was last week. And so if you want to listen to that, it's online on our website. And then I am the way and the truth and the life. And then I am the true vine. But today we want to understand these, um, the big deal about the phrase itself, I am. Ego I me. What does that mean when Jesus says that? Why is it a big deal that he describes himself as the I am? Well, in today's passage, Jesus is going to make the statement saying, before Abraham was, I am. And that statement triggers a violent response from the religious leaders. They actually pick up stones and they try to stone him um, right then and there after he said that. So let's read it together and try to get a sense as to why this is an issue. John chapter 8, starting in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And that's the question uh, that is going to drive the Pharisees. Who does Jesus make himself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you are. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight into this passage. Help us to truly understand what's at stake for Jesus to make the claim that he is the I am. And help us, especially those in the room who are asking the question, who does Jesus claim to be? Just like the Pharisees asked him that question and the scribes and the chief priests. Help us to clearly in our heart know who you claim to be and to surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, Jesus escapes an early death here at the end of the passage. Have you ever had a near-death experience? Have you ever had a situation where you almost died or could have died or um, maybe um, saw a situation that could have uh, ended terribly in your own life? I, I, I think we could probably say that some of us, maybe we've been in experiences where uh, we we avoided a car accident or um, something narrowly missed that could have ended catastrophically. I think it's an altogether different question to ask, has someone ever tried to kill you? Now, I don't know that anybody in our church can say that. Maybe you can. I would love to hear that story. Um, but Jesus, this was an attempt at his life. They picked up stones to stone him. You get the impression that if they had a weapon, if they had a gun, or if they had a spear or a bow and arrow, or I don't know what else they could have had, but they grabbed the nearest thing around to them and they tried to stone Jesus to death, but he hid himself. It led to an interesting rabbit trail this week. Uh, Not the first time that Jesus has had to escape an untimely death. There are 10 occasions in the gospel when Jesus, his life is threatened and he hides himself or he escapes death. Maybe you can remember some of these with me. The first one was when he was just a baby. Uh, In Matthew chapter 2, Herod had been uh, tricked by the wise men. You remember that story from Christmas? Uh, and so they, Herod sent to Bethlehem, and, and when he couldn't find the baby Jesus and his family or the wise men, what did he do? He had all the baby boys, two years and under, in Bethlehem executed. Uh, Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, were warned in a dream. In Matthew chapter 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so early in Jesus' life, he escapes death. Um, When Jesus challenges the Pharisees and some of their Sabbath restrictions, they begin to plot together how they could kill him. That happens three or four occasions in the gospel. Um, In Luke chapter 4, it's recorded that when Jesus first started his ministry, he went to his hometown and he stood in his own synagogue and they they, um, asked him to read. And so he picked up the scroll and he read from Isaiah. And, uh, And as reading in Isaiah, he said, today these words are fulfilled in your presence. Um, And then they asked him to do a miracle and he refused to do a miracle. And it says that all of his townspeople his hometown reception, right? What did they do? It says they, when they heard these things, the entire synagogue was filled with wrath and they rose up, they drove him out of the town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. In John chapter 5, after Jesus heals the man at the pool and he told him to carry his mat, the invalid who had been an invalid for 38 years. John 5.18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then we just read in John 8.59, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I wonder how Jesus hid himself. seems like it would be hard for Jesus to avoid detection. 
after he raises Lazarus from the dead, you remember we preached on, I talked about that last week in John chapter 11. They made plans to put him to death. That's John 11:53. Uh, in Mark 11, um, they f- were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. That was after he drove all the money changers out of the temple. There are several other uh, occasions when Jesus um, was threatened and almost killed. It adds a different level of intensity to the situation that we walked into. And look back at our text in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Seems like we entered into this situation in the middle of a kind of a tense disagreement happening. Have you ever walked in on a fight uh, or a tense situation? I remember one time Julie and I had just been married a couple years and, um, and we said, hey, let's stop by Paula and Otis's house and just rolling around on a Saturday afternoon. And when we, when we got there, they were outside um, doing some yard work together and we walked up to them and, and we could tell instantly that the mood changed. Uh, there was some tension and we found out later they were in the middle of just a huge fight and we kind of broke it up and in a naive way just we took away their time like we just started talking to them about whatever things we were doing and hanging around and, and but we could tell right away there was we got in the car and we said I think we just walked in I think we just interrupted a, a fight and he looked a little glad that we kind of walked in uh, she looked like she had some more things to say um, but it was one of those situations it feels like we just walked into a fight right I mean we just walked in the very first sentence was you have a demon you're demon possessed and you're from Samaria so what does that mean what are we what are we dealing with here let's get some Let's get some context here. It may be helpful to understand why they're accusing him and what, what's led up to this. They've just come off of an entire week called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, this was all of John chapter 7. Um, Jesus had gone up in September, so think early fall. This is the seventh commanded pilgrim feast um, on the Jewish calendar. And so basically the, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, it's a very important feast. It's when they celebrated the wilderness wanderings and um, every male in Israel was required to go to Jerusalem and they were required to camp in Jerusalem or the outskirts for eight days. And they were required to build their own tents. All right, can you imagine the scene? Uh, mass camping. How many of you like festivals or like going to campgrounds? Uh, these, this would have been an overrun campground situation. Imagine the first few days, how exciting it would have been, but, but imagine the, the porta-potties or the facilities. I don't know how that worked in uh, Jerusalem at that time, but, but this was eight full days of people coming together, building fires, cooking. They would celebrate how God provided for them food in their 40-year wilderness wandering. Um, every single day, the priests um, would march through to the Pool of Siloam with these golden vessels, and they would fill them with water, and they would walk through the campgrounds telling everybody how God provided water for them in the desert and how they they would pour out the water on the temple, and it was this celebration. And on the eighth day, they didn't do that. So seven days they would do that. On the eighth day, they didn't do that. And so when they didn't do that, their omission 
for drawing water was to show them that there was no longer a need, that God had provided water uh, and He had provided a place and He had provided for them. But it was on that day, the last day in John 7, that Jesus stood up and cried out to everybody, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow living water. And so this set the crowd off. This is about six months before the crucifixion in September. Jesus is inviting everybody at the top of his lungs at a required feast. If you're thirsty, there's no more water on this eighth day. If you're thirsty for anything, come to me and drink and I will provide for you rivers of living water that will flow from you. Jesus invites everybody who's thirsty Anybody who is in any situation where they, they are thirsty for something, Jesus offers to satisfy them. And he did so publicly. And so as a result of this, he became a target right then and there. And uh, in, in chapter um, 8, uh, it says, each one of them went to their own house, but early in the morning, Jesus came back again to the temple. And so Jesus starts it right back up after this feast, and he's in the temple while people are still lingering and maybe tearing down their tents or their booths. And, and he, in the middle of this situation where Jesus begins to teach again, they drag a woman out who's been caught in adultery, and they're ready to stone him again and Jesus uh, to stone this woman and Jesus says he who is without sin may cast the first stone uh, and then there are all these other interactions where Jesus again speaks to them in verse 12 I am the light of the world we'll get to that uh, in, in future weeks um, they have all of these exchanges finally the Pharisees say send the officers out to arrest him and they come back empty-handed and they said why didn't you arrest him and Jesus said or the officer said we've never heard anybody talk like this guy before it's he mesmerized even the arresting officers. And so there was a, a challenge happening. Uh, so Jesus continues to make all of these statements in John chapter 8. Even in verse 39, um, Jesus basically accuses them saying that you are doing the works of your father, the devil. And so he's provoking them. That's in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and, and etc. He, he's basically provoking these religious leaders and challenging them toe to toe. Up until this point in Jesus's ministry, he has not made the bold proclamations that he has. He's been going around. He's been doing miracles. He's been teaching. He's been um, alluding to who he is. But here we are getting closer and closer to crucifixion. Jesus is not hiding any longer. And he's toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. And so in the middle of this, in verse 48, they uh, say, aren't we right in saying that you have a demon and that you're a Samaritan? Well, what is that supposed to mean? There are two public insults that would have shamed Jesus in front of the crowd and discredited everything he would have said. Just to say you're a Samaritan would have been a horrible insult. A Samaritan was a, a racially mixed group of partly Jewish people and partly Gentile people. Every invading nation, if you think about the nation of Israel, every invading nation almost always came from the north. And as they encountered the north, uh, they would uh, set up their own cities and their own government stations and all those things. And the Samaritan group was just north of the region 
of uh, Jerusalem and Judea. And so in that area, they would have been mixed over generations and generations. They had their own Pentateuch. They had their own um, scripture. They had their own customs. Um, they had their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And, and they had their own rendering of Israelite history. And so the Samaritans were despised. Everybody hated them. As a matter of fact, if you were a faithful Jew on your way to Jerusalem, you would go out of your way either to the coast and down and then up the hills into Jerusalem, or you would go all the way around to the, um, to the Jordan River, all the way down, and, and then up through Jericho. You would avoid the entire center section of Samaria because they were so despised. You wouldn't even step foot in their territory. That's what makes John 4 so interesting, that Jesus goes through Samaria and talks to a Samaritan woman. They were despised. And so in the Jerusalem, in the temple, for them to say that to Jesus, you're a Samaritan, that would have been a, a height of insult. They also said, you're a demon. Uh, you have a demon. And this is one of several instances where Jesus is charged with demon possession. Uh, they leveled that also against John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, of blasphemy, of deceiving people, of being a Samaritan, of madness and criminal activity. They're trying to throw everything at him that sticks. Uh, the ESV study Bible outlines all of those places where they accuse him. But Jesus answers them in verse 49. And he says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Uh, he continues, I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks the glory, my glory, and he is the judge. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Um, Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered in verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him, I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know Him, and I keep His word. Jesus didn't shy away from their accusations. As if anything, he, he doubled down and he stood up to the line and said, not only uh, am I not demon-possessed, uh, he doesn't even answer the charge about being a Samaritan, but he now indicates that God the Father is seeking to bring glory to Jesus. They would have known, the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, they would have known from the Old Testament that God is jealous of his glory and he doesn't share it with anyone else. Isaiah 6.3, uh, in, in Isaiah's calling, he looked around and he saw the angelic being saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And while the earth is filled with his glory, he does not give his glory to anyone else. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own name, I do this. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. 
And in light of that, Jesus is saying, God the Father is giving me his glory. In light of their accusation against him, Jesus is saying that God is glorifying him. He also says that if anyone keeps his word, they will never see death. You remember the biblical idea of death is not that your heart stops beating and that your brain stops functioning and that your physical body dies. Remember from Genesis when God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you will what? You will surely die. They ate of the tree and they didn't physically die. So what is the biblical idea of death? The biblical idea of death is being separated from the one who gives life. Death occurred when they ate that fruit in the garden. Death occurred at that moment, though physical death took longer to take place. There was a long, agonizing spiritual death that took place at that moment where they were separated from the author of life and the source of life and from God in His presence. The long spiritual death that we all experience is outside of Christ, that emptiness, that sense of purposelessness, the lack of meaning, the continuous search for something to bring meaning to our life, to, to satisfy us. That it, it always seems elusive. We used to play this game with my kids where we would put a ball in the middle of the floor and I would grab their foot and it was their job, it was their goal in this game to just to touch the ball. And we called it just out of reach. I would, as soon as they would get as close as they could, I would yank their feet back when they were little. I couldn't do that today. But, but when they were little, I would, I would get them as close as they could to touch it and without letting them touch it, I would just yank them away and we would play this for hours. That's what this feels like, the sense of death, is that meaning, purpose, life, it's just always just out of reach. We can never quite grasp it. And that's what it means to be spiritually dead. It's a far worse death than merely not existing physically. Our soul remains beyond physical life in this body. Your soul will remain once your brain stops functioning and your heart stops beating. Your soul will remain. Mark 8.36 says, What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The Bible says that He has put eternity into the hearts of man. We are living beyond physical life. And death is not the absence of a physical body. Jesus said, if you keep his words, you will live. You will never see that kind of death. You will never see that kind of separation in your soul from God, the author of life. That's a serious claim that Jesus makes there. In verse 56, uh, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said, you're not even 50. How have you seen Abraham? How did Jesus see Abraham? And how did Abraham look forward to seeing Jesus? Turn to Genesis chapter 18. First book of the Bible, 18th chapter. In Genesis 18... God has been speaking to Abraham, but something interesting happens in Genesis chapter 18. The Bible says in Genesis 18, And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent 
in the heat of the day, the Lord appeared to him. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, that that phrase indicates this is not just uh, a regular human. O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. Abraham made all these preparations. And then look at verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, this is that uh, man standing in front of him, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old, like real old is what it's about to say. Like they were old, old. And, and she said, Sarah laughed to herself, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I now have this pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And so at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Then the men set out from there, verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. And then in verse 22, So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord, and when Um, Lot encounters, in chapter 19, verse 1, he encounters two angels. Those are the two men who are with Abraham and the Lord. But Abraham stuck around and talked to the the Lord, and he bartered with him. Do you remember if there's 50 people in the city, would you destroy the city for 50 people? No, not for 50. For 45, for 40, for 35, for 30, for the sake. And then he finally says, for the sake of five people at the very end, for 10, would you destroy it? And then in chapter 18, verse 33, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. What's this about? This is what we call a Christophany, a pre-incarnate Christ. When God takes on a body and reveals himself in human form to, uh, to people, to Abraham uh, in ex- uh, Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord, it's usually that's the indicator that it's God, it's Christ pre-incarnate before he comes to be a person in Mary. Um, Jesus is existing and he's revealing himself. And so this might have been the occasion when Jesus says in John 8 that 
Abraham longed for the day when he could see me. He saw me and he was glad. Christophanies all over the Old Testament. Hagar experiences the angel of the Lord. In Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham and tells him not to sacrifice and bless him. In Joshua chapter 5, Joshua meets the commander of the army of the Lord, and the commander of the army of the Lord says, take off your sandals, the place you're standing is holy ground. And it's typically an angel or a messenger from God would typically say something like, stand up, don't bow down to me, I'm just a servant like you are. Um, Get off the ground or don't worship me, I'm just a servant. But, But these particular Christophanies or experiences of the pre-incarnate Christ, they receive worship, they receive honor, they, they instruct, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. This is, this is God himself appearing. And so when Jesus said, Abraham saw me and he was glad to see me, this is what ticked off those Jewish leaders back in John chapter 8. Jesus goes on to say, before Abraham was, I am. And just by using those two words, I am, while you're in Genesis, turn over to Exodus 3, and you're going to see why this is such a big deal. In Exodus chapter 3, In Exodus chapter 3, you know the story of Moses. He was put in a basket as a baby. Uh, he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, um, rescued out of the Nile, and then raised until he was about 40 years old when he went to go and visit his Hebrew brothers. Um, he saw one um, uh, Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. He killed that Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And then uh, it was heard of what he did, and so he fled. And for the next 40 years, from age 40 to 80, Moses is a shepherd out in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, fleeing from this sort of murder conviction. Right? Uh, as a shepherd, he gets married, and he's walking around. And as an 80-year-old, chapter 3, verse 1 of Exodus, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, even though the bush was burning, it wasn't being consumed. And so Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see it, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. There is no mistaking the fact that Moses is looking at God. And it's called the angel of the Lord. And so when Moses says, I know you want me to deliver these people, but I don't know what I'm going to say to them. What are they going to say? It's been 400 years since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and since Joseph, since we got sold into slavery, and now we're in Egypt. It's been 400 years. What if they don't even know you? Who am I supposed to say you are? Chapter 3, verse 13. Moses said, If I come to the people and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, Ego, I me. I am. I am who I am. 
And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In the Greek Septuagint, the Hebrew scriptures written uh, in Greek called the Septuagint, it's that same phrase, ego I me. And so when Jesus said, before Abraham was, ego I me, that's what triggered them to look for a stone to kill him right away. Turning back to John chapter 8. The words I am in Greek use the same phrase. And it is God's self-identification as the I am. Make no mistake in John chapter 8. Jesus is claiming to be the eternal God. He is claiming to be the God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus is claiming that he is eternal. Not I was Not I will be, but I always am. I am who I am. And they understood immediately and picked up stones to stone him to death. So what does this mean for us? Jesus claiming to use the word I am, claiming to be God, the eternal God, means that we should understand his authority and his position And we should surrender to his authority. Remember John 20? He said, I want you to believe, intellectually understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But by believing, by surrendering to his authority, that's how you have life. And we see this all throughout John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus makes it clear that he has the authority to do everything that he says and the authority to do everything that he has done. If you don't understand John 8, one key word is authority. Listen to Jesus claiming authority in John 8. He forgives a woman who's caught in adultery. Who has the authority to forgive a woman or any person? Only God could do that. He claims to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God. He claims to be eternal. He claims to be the light of the world, to give light to everyone who follows him. Who could say that? That if you follow me, you will have light in your life, and without me there is only darkness. He says that his testimony about himself is true, even though no one else can vouch for him. He says that he alone is able to judge, because he and the Father are together in judgment. He says that the Father himself bears witness about who I am. He said that I am from above, and you are from below. He says in John chapter 8 that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am the Christ. And he says that you will know that I am the Christ when you've lifted up the Son of Man, which is a messianic title from Ezekiel. He says that I do everything with the authority that God gave me. Jesus said, I always do everything that pleases God the Father. He says in John 8, if you abide in me, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He says that if I, the Son, set you free, you will be free indeed. He says there's not one of you that can convict me of any sin. He says you can't hear me because you don't hear God's words. He also says if you keep my word, you'll never see death. He says that God the Father glorifies me. He says that I know God the Father, but you don't. He says Abraham rejoiced about seeing me and that he saw me and that he was glad. Before Abraham existed, I am. He says eight times in chapter 8 that he came from above. 
John 8, 14, my testimony is true because I know where I came from. John 8, 16, my judgment is true because the Father sent me from His eternal dwelling. John 8, 18, I'm the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. By the way, bearing witness about yourself doesn't fly for anybody. If I made a claim for myself, every one of you would say, I doubt that's true at all. But the only one who can swear by himself is Jesus or God himself. In Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I swear, declares the Lord, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. That's Jesus swearing by himself to Abraham as he's about to sacrifice Isaac. So in John 8, when Jesus says, I bear witness about myself and my witness about myself is true, he's claiming authority. John 8, 23, you're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I am not of this world. John 8, 26, I I have much to say about you and much to judge you for, but he who sent me uh, is true, and I declare to the world what I hear from him. John 8, 29, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 8, 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. Listen, this is not the words of a human being. If you saw this person and listened and read what you just heard in John chapter 8, you would think that this person belonged in an insane asylum. You would think that anybody who claims eight times that they came from heaven and that God were their father and that they were equal to God and that before Abraham was they, anybody else who says this, you would lock them away and throw away the key. But Jesus, this is the ultimate episode of Undercover Boss, right? The show where the, the CEO or founder of a company kind of shows up hidden, Jesus does this, and and, in John 8, the veil comes off, and he claims these radical claims. He comes down and now fully unveils his authority in an onslaught of truth. And so we should ask this question after we consider John 8. Does Jesus have authority, and does it extend to me today? If Jesus is saying this over all the religious authorities and leaders over the nation of Israel, and if Jesus is eternal, and if Jesus is the I am today, does he have authority over your life? Is Jesus the ruler of your life? Have you surrendered or yielded control of your life to him? Or are you still waiting? Are you still testing the waters to see if he's good? or if he loves you, or if his will for your life is good. Because like John mentions in John 20, you can understand intellectually that Jesus is the Son of God. That's not the same as surrendering your life to him. When you understand that Jesus has ultimate authority and all authority, does his authority extend backward in time and forward in time? Does he still have absolute authority? Yes. Colossians, Paul writes that he has put all things under his feet. Philippians 2, that he has raised him 
to the highest place that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Read Revelation. He's coming on a white horse to rescue his own. Jesus is coming back, meaning his authority extends forward. There will be a day when you acknowledge his authority in your life. The only question is, when will you do it? Will you do it before you die? Will you do it while you still have a will to acknowledge and to surrender? Or will you continue in hard-heartedness? One of the miracles of Revelation is that when a third of the world passes away and the trumpets and the bowls and everything pours out, it says that men still refuse to acknowledge and to surrender. There is a sinful wickedness within us that will perpetually shake our fist at God even when He makes Himself fully known to us. It's just like what Jesus said, your father, Satan. See, Satan desired to set himself above God as a rival to God and recorded for us in what's commonly referred to in Isaiah 14 as the fall of Lucifer. In the context of Isaiah 14, it says that, the, uh, that he wanted to be like God most high. That doesn't mean that he wanted to be like God in his character or his attitude. It means that Lucifer himself attempted a coup, a desire to overtake God. The speaker wanted to be like God in power and authority over God himself. And so when the Pharisees and the leaders in John 11 said, everyone is believing him and the Romans will come and take away our power, they knew who Jesus was. They just wanted the power over him. The only reason a creature would want to become its creator is due to a warped, prideful sense of self-importance. Do you have a warped, prideful sense of self-importance that refuses to surrender in spite of the fact of Jesus' demonstrated and stated authority? Listen, the only place the only position for us in light of His glory is with Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Woe is me. I am a man unclean and a man of people of unclean lips. Face down, flat on the ground before the glory of God in complete surrender. And so Lord Jesus, may it be for us. May it be for us that we understand Your authority in our lives, not just intellectually, but that we yield our will to you. That unlike Lucifer, who said, I will be like the Most High, I will seize control, that may we, like Isaiah, find our place before you rightfully in surrender understanding and acknowledging not just intellectually that you are the Christ, the Son of God, but by fully surrendering and that by believing in that way that we might experience life. You say that he who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself in this way shall be exalted. Jesus, you told the parable of the two men who went up to the temple to pray, one saying, I am glad that I am righteous and the other standing at a distance saying, have mercy on me, an unrighteous person. Those who are humble and surrendered to you find life 
and life eternally. It may be said in that way of us that we are a people surrendered, a people yielded, a people who willingly bow the knee to you, Jesus Christ, the one who has the tattoo on your thigh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one to whom all heaven praises when they see the slain lamb in the middle of the worship service in Revelation 5 saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and glory to the lamb that was slain. May that also be said of us that we are yielded and surrendered to the slain lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.